Good evening. I'm Paul Durienzo with these headlines. The White House says Israel has agreed to a four-hour-per-day humanitarian pause in North Gaza to allow refugees to flee the area. There have been no reports of a lull in the bloody fighting in the rubble of the bombed city. Israel's spokesperson says there will be no ceasefire. There have been reports of negotiations brokered by Qatar for the release of some of the more than 240 hostages taken by Hamas on October 7th. And the Israeli incursion into Gaza is continuing to inflict massive casualties. The death toll is at more than 10,800 Palestinians. But in Belvedere, Illinois, President Joe Biden seemed as far as you can get from the war in Israel. In his element, he greeted leaders of the UAW celebrating the reopening of an auto plant closed by a strike against the big three automakers when a voice shouted, cease fire in Gaza. I got raised on automobiles. My dad ran an auto, he didn't own it. He ran an automobile agency for a long time. No, 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 let, let her go. Let her, no. Meanwhile, a spokesperson for the city of Gaza was giving a press conference among the organized chaos of a hospital in wartime. He says Palestinians are not impressed. All this talk about humanitarian pauses is just misleading. And while we are talking about humanitarian pauses, the raids, the raids and the bombardments of the occupation are increasing. In news of the apocalypse, Russia says a comment this week by a member of Israel's cabinet that nuclear weapons could be used in Gaza raises a huge number of questions. Heritage Minister Amihei Eliyahu was removed from the cabinet for the statement. Russia and Ukraine have made similar nuclear threats. Nuclear expert Grant F. Smith is director of the Institute for Research, Middle Eastern Policy. The message Minister Eliyahu was trying to send was not so much to the Gazans and the Palestinians, but more along the lines of this whole thing can escalate and really get out of hand if you don't give us what we want. Despite laws meant to rein in covert assistance by the United States to aid Israel's nuclear weapons research, as recounted in Seymour Hersh's book, The Samson Option, Grant says Israel operates with impunity. The U.S. is complicit in pretending Israel doesn't have nuclear weapons. It removes all of the pressure that the U.S. could apply for any sort of reasonable peace settlement by gutting and just ignoring U.S. laws. The threats come as the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists moved its doomsday clock to 10 seconds to midnight. It's now 90 seconds to doomsday. The weekend marks Veterans Day, originally Armistice Day. It commemorated the end of World War I on the 11th day of the 11th month at the 11th hour. The war had killed 20 million people. Thursday, a group of anti-war veterans joined Representative Cory Bush on the steps of the Capitol. They came to demand a ceasefire in Gaza. Cory Bush, who is from Ferguson, Missouri, recounted how it was Palestinian volunteers who helped her recover from a tear gas attack during demonstrations after the police shooting of Michael Brown. Rubber bullets flying, there were dogs and all of the things that were happening. But if I just traveled a mile away, there was no tear gas. There was none of this happening. And it was just like people going on with their day. Well, that's what's happening right now. A veteran who worked in the military mortuary in Dover, Delaware, says she can never forget what she saw. As a result of what I bore witness to at Dover, Delaware, I receive a disability from the VA for anxiety and depression. And what that tells me is that our government does and can recognize the horrors of war. And Representative Rashida Tlaib, the first Palestinian woman in the body, was censured for her outspoken support of Gaza yesterday. A veteran from the Lakota Nation gave her support with a word to the Democrats who voted to censure. To the 22 cowardly Democrats who voted on the censure, veterans stand with Rashida and we stand with Palestinians. Paul DiRienzo, New York.
Now our extended interview with Grant Smith on Israel's nukes. The message that Minister Eliyahu was trying to send was really not so much to the Gazans and the Palestinians, but more along the lines of this whole thing can escalate and really get out of hand if you don't give us what we want. He's not in charge of that sort of decision, and he was quickly dismissed by Benjamin Netanyahu. But his message that they could be using nuclear weapons on Gaza definitely had another aspect to it, which is just kind of pressuring the West. It wasn't a very smart thing to say. Obviously, one of the problems with Israel's nuclear weapons, which Jimmy Carter back in 2008 estimated they have about 150, is that even though everybody knows they have them, they really aren't very useful in fighting a guerrilla war. They're most useful, as was documented in the Samson option by Seymour Hirsch, to pressure the rest of the world by threatening to bring the world down if Israel doesn't get what it wants. The Israelis were never involved in mutual assured destruction. It was always the Samson option in terms of why Shimon Peres, the grandfather of the Israeli nuclear weapons program, wanted to build an arsenal in Israel. It's almost like when Ukraine threatens constantly to shell the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, it's just an escalatory threat that really says to the West and his backers, hey, this can really get out of hand. Background on the Israeli nuclear weapon system. Right at the beginning of the state, there are already plans to go nuclear. Huge number of brilliant Jewish scientists involved in the Manhattan Project in the West. And there was a definite feeling that this is a kind of weapon that Israel needed to guarantee its futures. The nuclear program has been there from the start. The United States has contributed a great deal to it by turning a blind eye for materials and other technology losses. You had this Operation Project Pinto that both Benjamin Netanyahu and Arnon Milchan in Hollywood were involved in, in smuggling nuclear triggers through various entities to Israel to upgrade its nuclear weapons back in the 70s. The United States has never regulated any sort of harsh export controls. It's always turned a blind eye. And then the New Mech affair became a real issue with Senator John Glenn. They passed amendments to the Arms Export Control Act, which prohibit U.S. foreign aid to states that are not part of the NPT, but do have nuclear weapons. The problem that ministers who talk about Israel's nuclear weapons present to Israel is that there's a blanket sort of gag order a real one in the United States and military censorship in Israel that says you can't talk about Israel's nuclear weapons. The section of the Arms Export Control Act that prohibits U.S. foreign aid to Israel is Section 2799 AA1. Technically, the U.S. has been in violation of that prohibition since 1976. Well over $200 billion have gone out the door because none of the parties responsible for upholding that section of U.S. law, particularly the White House and Congress, are willing to do it. Of course, there are all sorts of laws, the Taylor Force Act and U.S. foreign aid flows out of the United States like water. But when it comes to responsibility and upholding other sections of U.S. laws, the U.S. is complicit in pretending Israel doesn't have nuclear weapons. It removes all of the pressure that the U.S. could apply for any sort of reasonable peace settlement by gutting and just ignoring U.S. laws. So the program's been around a long time. Mordecai Vanunu smuggled pictures out to the London Sunday Times. There's really no denying there is an Israel nuclear weapons program, that Israel is a player in terms of its own Samson option versus the mm -hmm. nuclear players that are acknowledged. And just like North Korea, it's not going to give up its nuclear weapons. It's a huge leverage that Israel has.
there's not really a lot that the Israelis could do to Gaza that they haven't already done with conventional weapons, and in particular would uh, certainly threaten their own well-being by right. using them. That's the first thing that comes to my mind, because from what, you know, just cursory knowledge of nuclear weapons, you know that they produce amount of radiation. Gaza is only an hour, an hour and a half drive from Tel Aviv. By simply saying, well, we've got this acute crisis, and even though we're bombing Syria all the time, watch out Syria, watch out Iran. As the de facto leading state sponsor of Middle East nuclear proliferation, Israel is able to send a message to rivals near and far that they can definitely suffer a huge fate if they decide to get heavily involved in the uh, crisis that's unfolding. The message was allegedly not authorized, but it's definitely having a great impact in Israel's favor in warding off nuclear rivals in the region. Nuclear expert Grant F. Smith, 300 Americans have escaped Gaza, that's according to the White House, as the conflict enters its second month. An American nurse from the Indonesian hospital in Gaza was one of those who got out. She says her colleagues are courageous. The people that stayed behind are heroes. The people that stayed behind are, are they know they're going to die, and they're choosing to stay behind anyway. I wake up every morning and I send out a text message and I ask, are you alive? United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres says as of Monday, 89 UN aid workers have been killed by Israeli bombing, the most in a comparable time in the history of the world body. Guterres says targeting civilians is a violation of international law. I'm deeply concerned about clear violations of international humanitarian law that we are witnessing. Let me be clear, no party to an armed conflict is above international humanitarian law. Protesters around the world have accused Israel of genocide in its response to the Hamas attack, at the very least a violation of the laws of war. And White House National Security Spokesperson John Kirby defended Israel of the charge on Tuesday. I heard this word genocide tossed toss around. But Hamas actually does have genocidal intentions against the people of Israel. They'd like to see it wiped off the map. They said so on purpose. So that's, what, that's what's at stake here, and we're going to keep making sure that Israel has that ability to do that. The executive director of Dawn, Democracy for the Arab World Now, is Sarah Lee Whitson. Whitson says the United States is accountable for Israel's actions. It, too, does not care about international law. It, too, does not care about the massacres of thousands of Palestinian children by Israel, that it intends to continue to aid and assist Israel in carrying out these atrocities. Whitson adds Israel has kidnapped United States foreign policy in the region. U.S. foreign policy is not independent. U.S. foreign policy has been confiscated and infiltrated by foreign government interests and defense industry. Dawn was formed after the 2018 murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi by Saudi agents. And in local news, in New York City, more than 21,000 vacate notices have been handed out to shelter residents warning their shelter stay as maxed out. Mayor Eric Adams says the city has no more room for thousands of migrants who have been bused to New York from the southern border. The drama played out today at the corner of East 9th Street and 1st Avenue on the Lower East Side. 20 cops, a couple of social workers, and a Department of Sanitation garbage truck arrived at 8 in the morning to evict some homeless folks who have set up an encampment they call Anarchy Row. Surprise, sweet. We got sanitation here. We got, oh, we got the whole crowd. Let's get some badge numbers. They came to rob us for our shit today. The video of the confrontation was live streamed on Instagram. Some of the homeless people explained the streets are safer than the shelters and they prefer a spot on the sidewalk. There's predators that travel around safe havens. Safe havens aren't even safe anymore. Nowhere is safe. The mayor is lying. They have enough empty apartments in the city to end homelessness three times, and that includes a migrant population. The people who society labels as migrants are the same people as everybody else. Mayor Adams has warned ending the right to shelter in the city could mean more New Yorkers living in street encampments. And now our extended interview with Sarah Lee Whitson of Dawn. The information we have from Israeli authorities, from the Israeli Defense Ministry, is that they are pursuing a plan to forcibly displace 
all Palestinians out of Gaza and into the Sinai. This is why there have been weeks of efforts to try to persuade or bribe Egypt to accept these Palestinians to Sinai, and even funding from the U.S. government to pay for displaced Palestinians in Gaza that, of course, breaches international law and is something that Egypt is not currently agreeing to do. What would happen to Gaza if the Palestinians were driven out? Rebuilt as a new wondrous city along the Amalfi coast of Israel, or what? Who knows? I mean, Israel has already stated that it wants to physically control Gaza going forward. It wants to reestablish its physical presence there, although it is the occupying power given its control of the borders, air and sea population registry. It has been absent physically by and large since 2006. What they intend to do with it, I don't know, but certainly it has long been a plan of successive Israeli administrations to evacuate the land of Gaza from Palestinian people. The Egyptian government has said they would be continuing fighting. The fighting wouldn't end. Hamas wouldn't go away. The Palestinians wouldn't go away. And the attacks would come from Egyptian territory now into Israel. And then it would become an issue between Egypt and Israel. May or may not become a place of fighting from Egypt into Israel. Certainly that would be one concern that Egypt would have. It uh, should be a concern that Israel would have. But the starting point is it is completely illegal and unacceptable for Israel to attempt to push Palestinians out of their homeland. This was predictable from the kind of government they put in place over the last few months. What is the United States going to do? The government of the United States and the Biden administration has unfortunately signaled that it too does not care about international law. It too does not care about the massacres of thousands of Palestinian children by Israel, that it intends to continue to aid and assist Israel in carrying out these atrocities. The U.S. has made clear that it will exercise its veto power as it did two weeks ago to block even a humanitarian pause, the sole country in the world blocking humanitarian pause for Gaza. Successive American administrations have shown that they will support Israel right or wrong, support its apartheid government, its annexation policies, and will ensure that the international community can't hold Israel to account. What American officials have failed to do is to adequately consider the costs of these kinds of policies, of this kind of approach to its global priorities and strategic interests, and the manner in which this shocking support of Israeli war crimes and crimes against humanity really undermines America's interests and America's global priorities. Is the United States being driven out of the Middle East? This is the beginning of the end for the U.S. there? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not even about being driven out. I mean, successive U.S. administrations have talked about their need and their wish and their desire to pivot away from the Middle East, to limit their support for dictatorships in the Middle East. And these are the specific promises that Joe Biden campaigned on when he was running to be president. And yet successive U.S. administrations have failed in their efforts to pivot away, to withdraw, to minimize the exposure of Americans to conflicts in the Middle East. There are a combination of reasons that explain why that's happened. The optics of Gaza being at the very edge, it's almost like you see the U.S. holding on with its nuclear missile carriers and its submarines and all the things it has up there, that it's not a good sign of strength by the U.S. It really speaks to the fact that U.S. foreign policy is not independent. U.S. foreign policy has been confiscated and infiltrated by foreign government interests and defense industry. Now, we've long known since Eisenhower's time of the nefarious influence of the military-industrial complex and how it manages to ensure that the United States is on a permanent war footing from one war to another since World War II, really just never-ending pattern of war and war-making. But I think what's new and different is the extent to which we are now seeing foreign government infiltration of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy decision-making. The decision that elected and appointed U.S. officials make 
are not in the interest of the American people, but are in the interests of foreign governments. The war in Israel is a perfect example of that, though not the only one. What would Mr. Khashoggi be thinking right now? Mr. Khashoggi would be lamenting. He would be weeping over the needless, horrific deaths of over 4,000 children in Gaza, over 10,000 people killed in Gaza. The fact that his country of exile, the United States, whom he always saw as a great hope for democracy and human rights in the world, was instead aiding and abetting these grotesque criminal acts in Gaza. I'm Paul Drienzo with these headlines. FBI agents seized phones and an iPad from New York City Mayor Eric Adams this week. That's according to the Associated Press and New York Times. as part of an investigation into his campaign fundraising. The seizures happened Monday night. They come after the FBI raided the home of Adams' chief fundraiser, prompting the mayor to cancel a trip to meet with the White House about the migrant crisis affecting the city. And in international news, it's the 35th day in Israel's war on Gaza as Israeli tanks surrounded four hospitals and bombs fell on El Shifa Hospital. On Friday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken finally admitted too many have died. Far too many Palestinians have been killed. Far too many have suffered uh, these past weeks. And we want to do everything possible to prevent harm to them and to maximize the assistance that gets to them. Meanwhile, in New York, Dr. Tedros Adnan, the executive director of the World Health Organization, spoke to the United Nations Security Council about the unfolding disaster in Gaza. More than 10,800 people have now been killed in Gaza. Almost 70% of them women and children. On average, a child is killed every 10 minutes in Gaza. And Dr. Tedros recounted his childhood experience with war in his home country of Ethiopia to describe the horrifying effects of war on children. The fear, the pain, the loss, these things have stayed with me throughout my life. I know the smell, the image of war. I know what war means. The most recent death toll in Gaza is well over 11,000. Nearly half are children. 40% of all the buildings in the city have been destroyed or heavily damaged. And more New York City news. Protests against Israel's war are spanning the globe. On Thursday, thousands marched through midtown Manhattan. Ariel Gold is a peace activist who heads up the Fellowship of Reconciliation. She tells WBAI, despite some disagreements with protest organizers in the early days of the war, which many call a genocide, she's in full support today. There's some different complications given the issue and such, but yeah, I mean, certainly these are the largest anti-war protests since the Iraq war. Are they good for the most part? They've gotten a lot better. I think they were problematic. There were some issues in the beginning, but I think they've gotten quite good now. One of the controversial chants by protesters has been, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, a reference to Israel and Palestine's location between the sea and Jordan River. Earlier this week, Representative Rashida Tlaib was censured by the House for defending the chant. Some say it promotes terrorism against Israel. The chant was heard in New York City Thursday night. From the river to the sea. Ariel Gold says she defends Tlaib, but acknowledges the chant could be misconstrued. It can happen where you end up having the, the news or the, and the conversations that come out of something end up being about the slogan rather than the massacre. Meanwhile, Thursday night, a large group of protesters occupied the lobby of the New York Times on 8th Avenue. They brought lists of the dead in Gaza and read the names out loud. Ahmed Jaroun, killed by apartheid Israel on October 7, 2023. Political Research Associates senior editor Ben Lorber has an article at politicalresearch.org titled Advisory, No Nazis on Our Streets. Lorber says the anti-Semitic far right has been attempting to infiltrate the Free Gaza movement. They claim to be allied with the larger movement for Palestinian rights, 
but they're trying to infiltrate these protests in order to spread their anti-Semitism and their white nationalist ideology. He says the worst offenders are right-wing Christian fundamentalists who believe in what they call the end times. And the U.S. supports Israel because of the millions of Christian Zionists in this country, millions more than the entire American Jewish population who have an end times theology on the radical right. People like Vice President Mike Pence, who support Israel because a fundamentalist Christian view will bring about the end times. Free Palestine protests have been held at the home and offices of New York Senator Chuck Schumer and the offices of financial giant BlackRock. Paul Durienzo, New York. And now our extended interview with activist Ben Lorber. The vast majority of people who are attending Palestine solidarity protests are not affiliated with some of these extreme right groups. But what we've been seeing in a few cases, like Washington, D.C., for example, a few weeks ago, there were 20 to 30 members of a group called the National Justice Party who showed up. You know, these are white men um, who are dressed in a very similar style, who were carrying signs that were explicitly anti-Semitic, things like calling what Israel is doing a Jewish war, saying that the U.S. government is controlled by a Jewish conspiracy. They claim to be allied with the larger movement for Palestinian rights, but they're trying to, to infiltrate these protests in order to spread their, their anti-Semitism and their white nationalist ideology. These people in Washington, D.C. was carrying signs that were talking about a Jewish war on white people. So this is clearly um, anti-Semitic stuff from the extreme right. And gratefully, you know, Palestine solidarity groups you know, do not tolerate it at their rallies. Like whenever these people have been identified, they've been quickly asked to leave by rally organizers who are clear that their variety of extreme anti-Semitism is not what the rest of the movement stands for. There were some neo-Nazi or white supremacist type signs that were anti-Semitic in nature that were reported at some of the protests early on. Yeah, these have happened early on, and we've also seen anti-Semitic groups who are known for harassing Jews outside of synagogues. They've been hanging banners over highway overpasses with anti-Semitic messaging about Zionist control of the U.S. government, which is an old anti-Semitic trope. They're hanging these signs off of highway overpasses. They're distributing leaflets and flyers outside of homes. And there's also many white nationalists who are doing this on the Internet. They're using platforms like X, and they're trying to hijack hashtags and slogans that are being used by advocates of Palestinian rights, and they're trying to spread um, anti-Semitic messaging that way, too. Mm -hmm. Let's lay this to rest. What is the, who's in control of who here? Who's really in control? Anti-Semitism tells a, a false story that the Jews are in control of everything. The reality is that the U.S. supports Israel because of the interests of U.S. politicians to secure their own U.S. geopolitical dominance in the region. And the U.S. supports Israel because of the lobbying of the weapons industries. And the U.S. supports Israel because of the millions of Christian Zionists in this country, millions more than the entire American Jewish population who have an end times theology on the radical right, people who support the Trump presidency, even people like Vice President Mike Pence who support Israel because of a fundamentalist Christian view that doing so will bring about the end times. These people are not friends of the Jews, but it's really important to be clear that those are the main forces that are driving U.S. support for Israel, not some Jewish conspiracy that these white supremacists are cooking up in their heads. And last point, what should folks be looking out for, especially uh, young, we see a lot of high school kids going out maybe to the first protest. Uh, these days, maybe not the first protest in their lives, maybe the first international protest about an international event in their lives. What attitude should they have in their heads when they hear different slogans of propaganda out there? It's important to remember that the vast majority of people who are attending these protests, they care sincerely about Palestinian rights. They care, they're deeply outraged, and rightly so, by what Israel is doing in Gaza. And they're not driven by the kind of anti-Semitism that we're seeing from these white supremacists. People who are rightly outraged by what's going on in Israel-Palestine should, of course, attend these protests. But to be on the lookout for any white nationalists who might be carrying anti-Semitic signs or any messaging, to not tolerate it, 
to challenge it if you see it. We who are out there protesting, we're driven by values of justice and equality for all. There's no room there for any anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. There's no way that these people are allies when they come into your group. It's pretty clear because these white supremacists, they don't only hate Jewish people. They also are deeply Islamophobic, deeply anti-black, and deeply misogynist. And these are not the values that that anyone stands for at these protests. We're all clear, not only do we want to avoid anti-Semitism, but we want to avoid all kinds of hateful ideologies at our protests. And so that's why we're clear that these folks are not allies to the cause for Palestinian rights and they're not welcome at our protests. Tuesday night may have been an off-year election, but it was also a bellwether of the voters' moods. The elections delivered a solid victory for a proposition in Ohio, adding a woman's right to choose an abortion to the state constitution. Ohio also legalized recreational cannabis use for adults over 21. Democrats won control over both houses of the Virginia legislature, despite a Republican governor. Vice President Kamala Harris says the public is siding with the president on the abortion issue. From California to Kansas, um, Ohio to, to Virginia, the voters said, look, the government should not be telling a woman what to do with her body. In national news, the GOP-controlled House Oversight Committee subpoenaed President Biden's son Hunter on Wednesday as part of its impeachment inquiry of the president. Committee Chair James Comer says more subpoenas are coming this week. Political differences are threatening to divide Democrats going into a presidential election year. Michigan Representative Rashid Tlaib released a video directly attacking President Joe Biden over the issue, a rare rebuke to a president by a young member of his own party. It opens with a statement by Biden and footage of the destruction in Gaza. We stand with Israel. Mr. President, the American people are not with you on this one. Innocent civilians are going to be hurt. We will remember in 2024. Tlaib has been the target of attack ads by pro-Israel Democrats. In one ad, she's hit below the belt by a reporter. And she refuses to answer even this horrific question. You can't comment about Hamas terrorists chopping off baby heads? Tell Rashida Tlaib she's on the wrong side of history and humanity. And Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene said she pulled her resolution to censure Representative Rashida Tlaib on Tuesday after the House passed another resolution to censure Tlaib, it was a 234 to 188 vote. Tlaib is the first Palestinian woman to serve in Congress. She's made strong statements in support of a ceasefire in Gaza. Trying to bully or censor me won't work because this movement for a ceasefire is much bigger than one person. It's growing every single day. The censure vote occurs as censorship against pro-Palestinian voices is growing, especially after hundreds of thousands marched across the nation in support of Gaza. And today, the House Judiciary Committee, headed by Republican Jim Jordan and New York City Democrat Jerry Nadler, was holding hearings on allegations leftists and pro-Palestinian students were censoring Jewish students. Activists from Code Pink and other groups repeatedly interrupted the proceedings. It is an honor to bring my experiences. Palestinian students should not be censored. There are 10... Thousand, over 10,000 Gazans dead, and more buried, <laughs> half of whom are under the age of 18. And you're going to spend money and talk about this? And in related news, the Washington Post is being slammed for publishing a racist, vile editorial cartoon titled Human Shields, purporting to show a Hamas fighter complaining about children being killed by Israeli bombs as he hides behind a terrified family of civilians. The cartoonist Michael Ramirez, a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, has gotten in trouble before with a cartoon conflating Black Lives Matter with support of terrorism. And in recent days, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has invoked the Bible to justify the bombing of Gaza. He referred to a story in Exodus where God directs Moses to launch a war of annihilation against the biblical Amalek people in the region of today's Gaza. A Presbyterian theologian, Don Wagner, says the Prime Minister is abusing the Holy Book. It's just fueling this primitive idea of a God who directs violence, and this is sanctioned to commit genocide. So it's a false use, and he's uh, very good at this. This is not the first time he's done it. Wagner, who leads tour groups to Israel, says the effect of using this rhetoric will last for generations. 
And now our extended interview with theologian Don Wagner. At this point, um, Netanyahu has invoked an ancient uh, trope that's actually in the Bible. You can find it in Exodus and you can find it in 1 Samuel of a hatred between the Amalekite tribe, Amalek and his people, and Israel. And the enmity stems, and we don't, this is probably not a historical document, it's more mythic legend that has built up from biblical times, where the Israelites were attacked as they just left the Sinai after wandering 40 years and entered the Promised Land. They were defeated, and as the text says, Moses went up on a hill while he instructed Joshua to attack the Amalekites, and Moses held up his arms, and that gave power. It's kind of a reenactment of coming into the Promised Land and a repeat of the Exodus narrative. That text ends by saying there will always be enmity between Amalek and the Hebrew people. That is the basis of it. In 1 Samuel, there's a section where the new King Saul was appointed by the prophet Samuel and told to go slay the Amalekites. And the text says, kill every man, woman, and child, and livestock. So he goes and he does that. He massacres all of them. But he keeps the king alive and brings him back as a ransom and takes a few cattle for himself. The prophet really rebukes him. The divine favor fell from Saul from that moment. So here you have these texts which basically have God endorsing violence. So this fits well with Netanyahu, who wants to demonize the Palestinians as if they're all terrorists and wipe them out. He gives this biblical claim, which really is not historical from what biblical scholars say. It's just fueling this primitive idea of a God who directs violence, and this is sanctioned to commit genocide. It's a false use, and he's very good at this. This is not the first time he's done it. A big part of his base now are these radical extreme settlers, and many of them are followers of Mayor Kahana, that rabbi with the Jewish Defense League and the Kach Party, which was declared a terrorist organization both in the U.S. and Israel. But that group has now become a political force. They're numerous, and they're actually in Netanyahu's party, and that's part of his coalition. So he's playing to that audience. But the other thing we miss is he's playing to a right-wing Christian audience, the extreme Christian Zionists. And those groups are now growing in Brazil, across South and Central America, in Africa, Southeast Asia, and you run into them when you visit the Holy Land today. But that's a base that provides him with support, political support in those countries. Israel is is used. It's used by the Christians who believe in the apocalyptic view. Israel has to become an independent, powerful nation oh, yeah. before it's destroyed. Yeah. yeah. I grew up on that. That was my background as a child. My family believed it. But I moved away from it when I studied it carefully, theologically and biblically. And it's a false theology. It's not at all what the Bible says, and what that does is it jumps right over Jesus and uses, strings together a few Old Testament verses. It's called premillennial dispensationalism, this end-time theology. It's around, it's growing, and that is the type that would endorse this Amalek thing and say right away, hey, the Palestinians are the Philistines, they're bad. It's a form of literalism, simplistic black-and-white thinking that is not good theology, and it's a misuse of the Bible. In fact, this Amalekite thing was used uh, by the Tutsis to kill the Hutus. It was used by South African whites to demonize the blacks. So whenever it's convenient, we have to work up an enemy, simplistic black and white, simple theology, you can invoke it. And that's what Netanyahu's doing today. It's fear-based, it works, It quickly dismisses an entire population as if they're all evil. Very, very dangerous. Would the Christians get involved? It's sort of like a a thousand years ago in the uh, Crusades. Yeah. Well, that's the dangerous part of it. It is not. It's a political state. It was created by the United Nations under pressure from the U.S. and and some of the European countries, especially England in 1947, November 28th, actually, 
in 47, then it becomes a state. It was a political creation. But religion has always played a major role there. All of the prime ministers up until Menachem Begin were secular. In fact, Netanyahu is secular, but he's a master at manipulating religion when it's convenient politically. Israel is a Zionist secular state where religion is increasingly playing a role in the far-right extremists, and Netanyahu uses that as a master. The key here is that this problem needs a political solution for the Palestinians to finally get justice and independence, where and Israel will never be safe. Israel will never have security until the Palestinian case is dealt with. Netanyahu can try to expel them into the Sinai Desert, which my article talks about, but they will not go away. And Israel will always be insecure until that is settled politically. So religion cannot be used to eliminate that. And uh, good religion is going to talk about justice. What is just? That's interesting. He's going to expel the Palestinians into the Sinai. Hmm. That is one of the concerns. For 40 years? Is that the plan? Yeah. Take a look at my article and you'll see there's a think tank that is aligned with Netanyahu that's recommending this is now the time to do that. Drive the Gazans to the south then put them over the border, put the Palestinians in tents, build them buildings, get the U.S. and the rich Arab countries to pay for it and be done with it. But that's just kicking the can down the block. Those young people who have been traumatized. I saw a young boy walk with his headless mother who had just been killed by one of the bombs and asking, where can we bury her? That trauma is in the brain and is going to turn again into hatred and violence. So this is just creating more terrorists, more opposition to a future settlement. So we need a political solution that's based on justice, Very not good. the cycle of violence. Presbyterian theologian Don Wagner. Protesters in Oakland, California, delayed the sailing of an alleged arms shipment to Israel for hours by locking themselves to the vessel. Protesters claim the ship is on its way to be loaded with weapons in Tacoma, Washington. Organized by a San Francisco Muslim group, several Jewish activists joined the protest. In related news, over the weekend, hundreds of thousands of pro-Palestinian demonstrators gathered in cities around the globe, including Washington, D.C. Massive crowds also gathered in London. The protests come as the death toll from Israeli bombardment of Gaza surpassed 10,000. Nearly half of the dead are children. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres launched a campaign to raise $1.2 billion in humanitarian aid for Gaza. He says the carnage is unprecedented. Gaza is becoming a graveyard for children. Hundreds of girls and boys are reportedly being killed or injured every day. More journalists have reportedly been killed over a four-week period than in any conflict in at least three decades. More United Nations aid workers have been killed than in any comparable period in the history of our organization. Meanwhile, anti-war Americans are gearing up for a long battle to stop the Gaza conflict that shows no sign of an early end. Activist Brad Wolf is with a group organizing the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal. Witnesses will present evidence to a jury of alleged war crimes by the United States and Israel. We hope that they will find these United States corporations and the CEOs of the corporations guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Opening session of the tribunal convenes later this week. The tribunal will be this Sunday evening, November 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. It's going to be live streamed and it is uh, free. You go to www.merchantsofdeath.org to register. The tribunals modeled on similar tribunals that expose U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. And a Republican is in an uphill battle to steal the GOP presidential nomination from former President Donald Trump. His name is Vivek Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy says the United States is locked in an internal war over individual rights. Either you believe in free speech or you believe in censorship. You cannot have both. Either you believe in American exceptionalism or you believe in American apologism. 
But writer and educator Arun Kunani says the threat against freedom of speech is not from woke liberals, but from supporters of Israel who have been overtly trying to silence dissent. Because they're losing the argument on the pro-Israel side, they're increasingly resorting to censorship. And so we're seeing very large um, numbers of people who are having job offers rescinded, pressure on universities to um, clamp down on pro-Palestinian activism, non-violent civil action groups on campuses um, being categorized as criminal organizations. We're seeing a kind of new McCarthyism here, and I think it speaks to the fear that they can't win the argument um, in an open debate, and so they're having to rely on these methods instead. And finally, Donald Trump had a meltdown during his testimony at a state court in Manhattan, where he faces big losses in a business fraud suit brought by Attorney General Tish James. Outside the court, he called James a name. Uh, you have a racist attorney general who made some terrible statements. I mean, you see someone that came over the wires today. At one point, Judge Arthur Engeron cut off Trump, saying, we don't have time to waste. Paul DiRienzo, New York. In our extended interview with writer and educator Arun Kunnani on how the U.S. is locked into an internal war over individual rights. You started to see those kind of images of the Muslim fanatic um, from the from the 1970s, from that period of the oil embargo, and um, uh, you know, through the 70s and 80s, um, that was the image, and then after the end of the Cold War, um, you know, it became the terrorist, and um, with the end of the Cold War, you know, communism was defeated, and you started to have neoconservative intellectuals. Uh, so-called intellectuals who would talk about needing to find a new enemy and Islam became that new enemy for a lot of them and um, so you started to see the idea of the Muslim extremist Um, and then of course with the war on terror that whole idea was turbocharged when politicians talk about Israel needing to defend itself and the only story is we have evil terrorists um, Israel's right to self-defense then of course we have no way of understanding what what the conflict is really about. Um, we have no way of understanding the Palestinian cause. Then we just kind of by default assume that there must be something terribly barbaric about Islamic culture or Arab culture that is leading people to behave in such terrible ways. So we do then see an increase in anti-Muslim sentiment in the United States. We've had Plainfield, Illinois, we had someone wielding a knife, breaking into someone's home and, and killing a six-year-old child and attacking the mother, saying, you Muslims might, must die. We've had, and we've also had Palestinian-American man hospitalized in Cleveland, by a, rammed by a car whose driver was, was reported to be shouting, kill all Palestinians and not with Israel. We have these incidents, and in, anti-Semitism has increased as well. This is American citizens who don't really, normally wouldn't have too much in the fire with this issue, but are somehow worked up that this is a patriotic American issue. It doesn't really matter if they don't know much. We couldn't find it on a map. The defining characteristic is, is that these are people who are Zionists, right? These are people who are attached to the idea of Israel. They could be Jewish and they, and they could not be. I mean, most Zionists in the United States are actually Christian. We tend to think of Zionism as the sort of political expression of Jewishness, but it's not that at all. It's a political project. Jews are split right now in the United States on this issue. Increasing number of anti-Zionist Jews. And as I say, most Zionists in the United States are actually Christians who, for their own religious reasons, believe in, in Israel and having the right to, you know, supposedly the right to defend itself as part of a, a kind of apocalyptic vision that comes out of Christianity. The idea of Zionism involves the idea that of settlement in the Holy Land, right? And, in, and saying that one group of people has the right to that land and another group of people needs to be removed or eliminated from that land. That's an inherently violent project. And when it comes to the fore, then it certainly involves violence in Palestine and it, and it can also involve violence here. I mean, in the United States is a country where ending one pregnancy <laughs> that might have has entire states political apoplexy. Yeah, it's a paradox, right? Because we um, claim to really value the lives of unborn children, but as soon as those children are born, even in the United States, we don't do a very good job of providing childcare facilities for young people, and we don't do a very good job of 
making sure that they have decent schools to go to and so on. Is that, you're relating that um, to people's being desensitized? We have our priorities all wrong. Instead of thinking that we should be spending the resources we have in this country, you know, we're the richest country in the world, and instead of thinking that we should spend our resources on decent schools, decent childcare, decent hospitals, which we don't really have in this country, we're sending that money to carry out mass killing of people in Palestine. There's something wrong with that. We are seeing a lot more people become aware of the Palestinian narrative that's been historically marginalized in the United States. Amongst Jews, there's a clear split now between people who are in favor of what Israel's doing and the increasing number who oppose it. Because they're losing the argument on the pro-Israel side, they're increasingly resorting to censorship. And so we're seeing very large um, numbers of people who are being told that having job offers rescinded, pressure on universities to um, clamp down on pro-Palestinian activism, non-violent civil action groups on campuses being categorized as criminal organizations. And so, you know, we're seeing a kind of new McCarthyism here. It leads to the fear that they can't win the argument um, in an open debate. And so they're having to rely on these methods instead. I noticed a number of people lost their jobs and claiming it was because they were took a pro-Palestinian position, people in, in high-profile type jobs. Absolutely. We're seeing a number of law firms and so on have have actually openly said that they would no longer employ people who have signed on to statements supportive of, of the Palestinian cause. People losing their jobs for their legitimate political opinions. They didn't just fire you, they fired you in front of everybody, they humiliated you on television. We're seeing organizations compile lists, There's a list going around of thousands of employees of major corporations who allegedly have signed the some kind of statement critical of Israel and essentially getting blacklisted and demanded that they, they be fired by these organizations. This is a very extreme stuff that is, as you say, reminiscent of the um, McCarthyism of the 1950s. We should be incredibly grateful that we have at least one or two people in Congress presenting the point of view um, from the other side, because just from the point of view of having a healthy democracy, something wrong when you only have one story being told in Congress. We need the the Palestinian narrative as well, because in the end, the only way we're going to get peace is if we have some kind of political process, some kind of political settlement. You're never going to get a military solution to this conflict. So long as the pro-Israeli narrative is the only narrative in town, then the war is just going to continue. Two aircraft carriers, 200 fighter aircraft. What are they planning to fight? This is one of the most worrying aspects of this, that the United States believes that it needs to send some kind of message of resolve to Iran and Hezbollah and so on to, to try and intimidate them into not entering the conflict. The United States is deluded, actually, if it thinks that intervening in this conflict is going to work out well. I'm it's for domestic consumption. Perhaps in the main for domestic consumption, but these things have a way of getting out beyond the initial intentions of the people who come up with these ideas. A great concern that that we're sending more and more military personnel and resources into the region. It feeds on itself and becomes self-fulfilling. Right. Absolutely. Paul DiRienzo, New York. You can find the archives of this program at paulderienzo.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening.